Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the first segment of today's show, I'll be talking with William Minter and Leah Russell about their video production company, Wheel to See Productions, which focuses on making short movies and promotional videos for local nonprofits like Music Haven, New Haven Farms, and the Whitneyville Cultural Commons. We'll talk about their background in making movies, the stories that they find and seek to tell in the city, as well as some benefits and challenges of being New Haven-based movie makers. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a review of Free State of Jones, the new Civil War-era historical epic that stars Matthew McConaughey as a Mississippi farmer who fights and fights and fights and fights to carve out a peaceful, egalitarian, and free land amidst a divided country weaned on violence, racism, and exploitation. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the studio William Minter and Leah Russell. William and Leah are the duo behind Wheel to See Productions, which, as I mentioned at the top, specializes in making short videos for and about New Haven area nonprofits. William, Leah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for thank having you. us in. Yeah. Okay, so um, at the very top, why don't you just introduce me and our listeners to your production company, to Wheel to See. Wheel to See. I've described it as a production company that specializes in making movies about nonprofits. That's just my understanding based on the movies I watch. But I'd love to hear kind of your pitch when you describe to people what you do. What what is Wheel to See? So maybe I'll start with Leah, or I'll start with <laughs> William. Who, whoever wants to take that one first, and then pass it off to the partner. Okay, um, I'll I'll start. Um, so we have been making movies in New Haven uh, for a. For about a year but we only officially started the company in uh, january and the idea behind the company was to was as a learning experience for me originally but also uh, for leah to to get uh get to meet interesting people in the community and learn new skills and see what's going on and and pr primarily what we want to do um is to uh show good things that are going on in our community uh so because i think so often when when we open the news uh we we only see bad things and we don't see the good things and i think people are going to be more inspired to uh, make the world a better place if they um if they see good things that are happening locally it'll help them get involved do you see that as the mission of the company as well finding the good in new haven and showing it to as many people as possible Leah? absolutely and and um just trying to inspire and um, the best thing for me about doing this is, um, is meeting people who are so passionate about what they're doing and, and getting the best from them because they're so happy to share and so eager to, to let people know. And we've been here for, uh, five years. We've been in the New Haven area and it's amazing to me, um, <clears throat> how many, organizations we're only just finding out about even though we've been here for a while um there's so much good stuff going on and and that's really exciting to see so i want to talk about some of the companies that you've profiled and, and worked for and how you found them and what you think they kind of say about the the nonprofit or the interesting people community in new haven but um tell me a bit more about your background so you said you've been in the new haven area for five years and you've just started this company in january um did either of you have backgrounds in making movies, or was this uh, a a new, exciting, I, dangerous yeah, venture? So um, it was it was fairly new for both of us. Um, I had a background in uh, doing 
audio engineering uh back when i was at school i did i did sound engineering before so i was already aware of how to use some complicated software for that and i thought it would be a small leap to learn uh video software um so there was definitely a steep learning curve as i found out you know i, I hadn't really picked up a camera um that much before a year ago and so um it was a little experimental but but um but I was picking up some threads of things I've always been interested in. I've always been interested in drama and the arts in general and in music. And um, <clears throat> so it was, I think it was sort of bringing together a lot of threads that I was interested in for my whole life and hope and combining them. And is this your kind of full-time job profession right now? You guys are dedicating everything to Wheel to See? Mm -hmm. That's right. I was, uh, I was a teacher for six years before this, and I uh, actually finished my job entirely and, and to go to devote full time to this, uh, which was quite a leap. And, um, and, and I had a mix of <laughs> all sorts of things. I taught, um, I was also a teacher, um, a language teacher, and uh, I was an admissions officer, and I was an employment specialist at IRIS, the Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services. And um, I think that had a big part um in in how we got into filmmaking in the first place um was uh being inspired by the people i was working with both staff and the clients and and wanting to help the community see more of that and share share more with the community so i think there are i mean one thing i'm really interested in about your story is that you were inspired by maybe the people you were working with, the, the companies you saw acting in New Haven, and the way that you acted on that inspiration was to start a video production company to, without necessarily any background in making movies, to, to make movies about these companies. I know probably a lot of people, I'm inspired by you know the nonprofits in town uh, all the time, and I donate during the Great Give, or you know I try to volunteer, but I've never really thought of stopping and saying, this is a productive way for me to volunteer my time to to make movies. What was that step from, you know, being inspired by these companies and deciding the best outlet for that inspiration was making movies about them, especially when that wasn't necessarily uh, your your background? I think for me, um, I was looking for a way to use, um, use to, to, to best use my skills and also to learn new skills. And, and um, before you know, I, I mentioned I did, I have a background in music and producing, producing plays and I like in general organizing things. And so it just seemed to me to be a natural uh, fit. Um, I became, it, the, the idea sparked uh, in me already a few years before then uh, when I was uh, doing a master's, a one-year master's at Yale and um, I was served on the the jury for the environmental film festival and so i watched um about we actually both did um 10 movies uh in the in a week um all on social change and that really awakened me to the you know the power of of movies to to help people change uh, make the world a better place yeah, that's that's a really interesting festival and I've, I've covered it for the independent in the past i think the one i covered was two years ago uh, and I remember, you know, they played something like 
15 movies over the course of a week. It's a really phenomenal number of movies. And then from all over the world, I mean, this isn't just a local filmmaker competition, but they're bringing in filmmakers from China, from North Dakota, from Russia, I mean, from all over the place. And I remember thinking uh, while watching a lot of the movies, and this is kind of the angle I took on covering it, was that everyone seemed to be responding, even 10 years out, to the kind of lasting influence of Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth mm. and the kind of dry, almost supercilious delivery of facts about climate change and the way mm. that one, all, all that one needs to do is look at the information and then respond to it in a rational way. Um, and I mean, that was kind of a, a big critique of uh, Al Gore going back decades, but people don't necessarily connect with him emotionally, um, mm -hmm. if, if they do intellectually. But I found that so interesting in the context of environmental movies, because movies, as you know, Roger Ebert said, are these empathy machines, right? They're mm -hmm. ways to get audiences to connect at like a visceral level mm -hmm. with someone who is not them. And mm -hmm. I loved the way that the, the movies that Effie tried to put the audience in the actual kind of headspace of the people experiencing either the most dire of environmental consequences or pushing to make, you know, the, the most kind of hopeful and idealistic of changes. Um, and all of that is kind of a long wind up. But when, when you're thinking about making movies about nonprofits that you cover in New Haven, um, as someone who doesn't necessarily have a background in maybe the like vocab, like kind of like film vocabulary of like what what are the different kind of elements that constitute making a movie, but you do know that this is one way to deliver a story and to have an impact on a community. What are you, what are you thinking about, Leah, when you approach making a movie about a a music haven, an iris? What what are the what's your kind of strategy for communicating what this organization is and how you can encourage audiences to you know f follow up on the movie? Well, I think it was a great um, point you made just a minute ago about how uh, films are a machine for empathy. That's one. That's another reason that we got into it was because it, um, we felt that film is a great tool for engaging people's emotions. And it's all about, um, I don't know where we read it, we read somewhere that it's all about emotion or motion. And that's, that's what you... Um, are aiming for when you when you make a film. So when we are talking with um, the nonprofits about what they want um, the film to to convey and what they want it to do, we start with well, what feeling do you want people to have at the end, and and start from there. What do you want people to do after they watch it? Do you want them just to share? Do you want them to donate? Do they more participation in the film and try to try to start with what the objective is. And um, a lot of people say, um, we, wanna, we wanna share who we are and what we do and, and raise awareness about the organization. And then from there, we try to drill in to what, what specifically, what do you want people to know about and what, um, what do you want them to do after they they see a video how how can you use it as one part of your overall um marketing strategy because there are lots of great really really great videos and if they uh aren't if you have a great video but you don't think of how you're going to use it it can it can kind of get lost through the cracks so you need to think as well about how to use the video so that people see it 
you know, I've had a number of kind of freelance videographers through the studio over the past couple of weeks that the show has existed. And the first one, one of my favorites is a guy named Travis Carbonella. Yes. I'm not sure if you've yeah, met Travis, yeah. but he's kind of everywhere. He's kind of New Haven's man with he's a movie wonderful. camera. But he does a lot of kind of similar things in that he, you know, brings his camera to organizations that ins- inspire him in some way. And, and he documents their impact on the community, um, as well as the many interesting people and faces and voices that he finds throughout New Haven. And I'm thinking in particular of his videos about the Westville Art Walk and just how dynamic those videos are, how they usually don't have any narration, but they just kind of, they float from performance to performance in this great celebration of arts in the community. And he is a videographer who I think, you know, this guy really leaves his own kind of personal kind of thumbprint on every video he makes, regardless Mm -hmm. of who he's making it for. And I wonder how you guys think about that as, you know, on the one hand, you're working on a, um, you know, you are serving a, a, a client or, you know, someone is, is commissioning a video from you and you're asking what about your organization do you want us to communicate? But William, when you think about making one of these movies for any of these organizations that again, we'll talk about in a second, mm-hmm. uh, how much of your own kind of style or imprint do you see yourself leaving on these videos? Is that a goal of yours? Um, as someone interested in the arts, or do you think I have to completely transform kind of my vision for each video, depending on what the client wants? That's a good That's question. question. Um, it's well, it's g- great you mention uh, Travis Car- Carbonella because he's been a, a a great inspiration for me. I I think he's uh, fantastic. He just gets out there in the community and makes a large number of videos that are all really high quality. And not just that, but he personally welcomed us and was incredibly friendly. He's been so fantastic. Uh, and kind. We met up with him early in this year. We identified him as somebody who's doing similar things to what we want to do. And he took the time to meet with us, tell us, tell us his story and give us a lot of um, encouragement. You know, he said, well, you know, for me, I was I was scared at the beginning. So don't worry if you feel that way. And really, you know, uh, that support that he gave us was meant, meant a lot to me. Um, so as for putting my, you know, putting my stamp or putting our stamp on the, the videos, it's definitely something I, I seek to do. And I think that, um, my background in, in music, I play different, uh, instruments and, and do, you know, can, can mold backing music to videos, um, to, to avoid kind of, uh, out of a can music. And secondly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning more about graphics and about, different different techniques um i i think that my my end goal is is to have people know know that we created it but i think right now it's it's still an we're still fairly early on so we're still exploring and being quite flexible Um, so for example recently we made uh, we're in the process of finishing a video for wallingford public library and we started out and they said a similar thing you know we want people to know what's available for them at the library we started out by going to library events and filming to see what was actually going on. And I soon realized that uh, a lot of these events involve people sitting down and not doing very much, like watching a movie or doing knitting or discussing a book. And that just doesn't make very good video. So I completely, so a few, a few uh, shoots in, I said, okay, got to completely change this. And I, I, in, instead, I turned it into an animation and I just created a different story um, and I had a, a, a story of um, uh, magical paper aeroplanes going through the streets of Wallingford and arriving at different people and inviting them to come to the library and showing uh, what is 
and and the on the messages on the planes showed what is available to them. So I I totally changed it and just made it something I thought would be more fun to watch, but would have the same information. And so that's just an example of something where I could quite where I evolved uh, my approach because it wasn't really working and I needed to to do something more engaging. And so much of the energy of that particular movie is driven by the music underneath it, right? There's there's no there's no spoken kind of narration. These are you see the paper airplanes kind of flying to the jauntily walking pedestrians, but the the music, which I should say is a lot of which is posted on the Wheel to See website. Right? It's not just a series of videos, mm-hmm. but kind of SoundCloud playlist of, of different backing tracks that you've made. Um, and in in each video that you make, you, you're right. The the music does play such an important role, whether as the only kind of sound accompaniment or just kind of underlying uh, interviews that you've done. Um, I think that may be a good transition to some of the other videos and, and nonprofits that you've worked with. But before we say that, I want to say that uh, you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH 103.5 FM, uh, New Haven's home for community radio. Uh, I'm your host, Tom Breen, and we're talking with William Minter and Leah Russell from Wheel to See Productions. So one of the organizations that Lucy and I have been seeing um, for, you know, we've been going to performance of theirs for a long time. Lucy's written a lot about them is Music Haven. Mm. They're really one of our favorite groups in the city. Mm. Um, and I know that you actually, the way that I found out about you two uh, is that uh, Kathleen sent oh, me yes. uh, an email saying, these, you know, William and Leah seem like perfect guests for your show. We've been oh. working th- with them a lot on, uh, now she's been shooting alongside you for various Music Haven events. So tell me a bit, Leah, about your experience with Music Haven, how you found them, what what you see in them that inspires you to make these movies, uh, and then maybe one one of the videos that you guys have made for, for Music Haven. Gosh, well, they've been so great. They, they have really, really inspired me. Um, and, it, you know, it's interesting. Um, so we found out about them because um, William and the director Mandy were in a um, community leadership program together. And Mandy said, oh, we could use some video um, because uh, currently we don't have that much. And and being a musical um, organization, it's it's good to have the visual and the, the audio side. So um, she... Uh, she said, can we cover a flash mob that, that they were doing um, in the train station? And so that was a lot of fun. The kids are just great. They're the nicest kids. They all, um, the, the relationship between them is just so, uh, it's so positive and you notice it immediately. Um, They all get along so well. And, um, so they were a lot of fun, and that was a lot of fun. It was a challenging uh, thing for us because the lighting in the train station wasn't great, and we couldn't control the the environment very well. But that's okay. We we had fun. We learned a lot. Um, and then and then Mandy said, oh, "I've got so many ideas. Um, you could you could do the personal story of this kid, or you could do um, this in the quartets, or you could do." Uh, our outreach and education part or you know and and we were brainstorming all the different uh types of stories that we could do and and she said i'm you know why don't you guys just start filming and we'll you can see what comes out what jumps out at you so i thought okay we'll try to kind of sum up music haven in one go and that's what i was originally 
aiming for. We were, we were, and <laughs> we've both been saying, I, 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 we've, this year's been a little bit interrupted. So there have been times when we've been working on our own, which is also, which has also been good for us. But, um, much of my exposure to Music Haven comes through the performances of the quartet, the string quartet, the mm. kind of professional musicians who act as tutors for uh, dozens of students in Newhallville and Dixwell and Fairhaven, providing kind of tuition-free lessons throughout the year on violin, viola, cello. But So much, much of my exposure comes through the kind of adult professional element. But one of the things I so appreciated about your videos is that you captured kind of a, a different perspective on Music Haven in each video, whether it's the flash mob where the students show up and perform at Union Station or a, a profile of one of the tutors, Yaira, or a short document about you know, a student-led initiative about putting on a performance um, in support of Iris refugees. Um, I wonder, William, when you uh, think about your collaboration with Music Haven, or I mean, you can also talk about another nonprofit that that you've worked with. But what is it that you see in this organization that you think lends itself to kind of a, a video representation that this is like a worthwhile thing to do for this organization? Um, and and what about I mean, how how did you feel about the challenges of uh, going into a relatively uncontrolled environment in Union Station and capturing uh, the, the student performance when usually you're doing interviews, I imagine, in classrooms or in a somewhat more controlled spot? Yeah, well, um, I, think, um, I think that, um, have, you know, I think having kids playing musical instruments um, just makes, just make, just is fun to watch. Um, and I think that even even with a slightly uh, chaotic or messy environment, um, it's still you're still getting that emotion, and you're getting um, you know you can see the concentration on the kids' faces they're practicing, or you can see the you know that it, it's such a visual um, subject that that really um, I think it brings it to life, and it allows you as a viewer to be there. If you read about um, Music Haven. You know, you, you could read about, you could read a, a description that it's it's a organization which, um, you know, helps uh, inner city kids learn string instruments, but that doesn't really bring to life what's actually going on there. And, it, and you wouldn't get to see the, the relationships and the kindness between the, the people. And I think there are so, so many subtle things that you can only, you can only really get by watching video. You couldn't get in any, you could get by being there or by watching video, but you couldn't get through any other medium. Mm. Now, you've worked with a, a number of uh, different nonprofits in town, uh, not just Music Haven. We've got New Haven Farms, uh, the Shoreline Trolley Museum in East Haven, Iris, uh, and, and a number of others. And I, I wonder if, Leah, you could talk uh, with me a bit more about these nonprofits that you have found and already worked with in New Haven and um, either a, a specific experience kind of making a movie with one of them that you found either particularly challenging or rewarding, but also taking a step back and thinking about what, I mean, what kinds of nonprofits do you see in New Haven? Do, do you want to show? And is, is there something unique about uh, people doing nonprofit work in New Haven that you're finding? Or are there people like this all over the country and it's just a matter of, you know, bringing a camera to, to, to your local uh kind of co-working space or wherever it is and, and finding them and telling that story. Mm, so I know there are a bunch of questions in there. Yeah, but. <laughs> well, I'll start with that last one. Um, somebody, I can't remember 
who said um, New Haven is such a great place because it's it's big enough to be a city and there's so much going on here, but it's small enough to have that community feel and and to really feel a, a sense of belonging to New Haven and to you know to take pride in in what's here. Um, so I think that's one of the special things. Um, about being a filmmaker in New Haven is is that community aspect of it and and the concentration of nonprofits. There's just so much here and um, a really diverse population. Um, it's just all really exciting. And um, let me let me see. To go back to one uh, one one story that I'd like to share about. Um, doing the iris video that was particularly challenging and surprising and this was kind of early on in our like like we said we only started a year ago and we didn't have any experience before that so so this was one of our first lessons we went to um iris which i was familiar with because i'd worked there for for a couple of years and could you remind us what they do what? iris mm -hmm. iris is the integrated refugee and immigrant services and it um helps uh, resettle um, refugees from all over the world into New Haven and, and help them establish new lives here. So, um, so <laughs> we, were, we started the project um, with the aim of showing a family that um, had resettled well um, with a bit of support from from the community, and um, we were hoping to show um, that the family was just like other American families and that there wasn't a lot of different... We wanted to, to help people relate to people that they might not know that much about. So that's what we... That's kind of what we set out to do, and we, um, we were working with a beautiful, wonderful family from Sudan, and um, they were completely on board with the project and understood what we were trying to do. And we filmed them doing kind of everyday things, apple picking and pumpkin picking and soccer and blah, blah, blah. And so we got all that footage and then, um, then we did the interview and said, can you tell about your experience and your story? And so that was all kind of as we expected. And then we said, okay, is there anything else that you'd like to share? And, um, and he said, yes, it's very important. Um, we're from Sudan. We're not from Darfur, though, and Darfur gets a lot of press, and everybody knows about Darfur. We're from the Nuba Mountains, and nobody knows about the genocide going on there. And I really need Americans to know that there's a whole separate genocide happening in the Nuba Mountains, and that's what I really need. And we went, oh, my goodness, now what are we going to do? This video is only... A couple minutes long how do we get that story in and get you know respect what what he wants to say and, and you know and we've got all this footage of, of apple picking so um, that's right so we found that the the interview and his message which we felt that we felt it's it's completely important for us to to pass on his message which is to raise awareness about genocide in sudan um that was very hard to to uh, integrate into a movie that was meant to be a positive 
uh, portrayal of a family that had settled well in America. And they, they really did settle well in America. However, they had this background that they wanted to share. So, and, and then from a music point of view, how do you do that? Do you, you know, do you have very sad music and then suddenly very happy music? That would be very jarring. So uh, in the end, you know, we, we, um, we did manage to put both in the, in the, in the, in the video, but I do feel that I don't think it did justice mm. to either story mm. in the end. So uh, possibly we should have made two separate videos, but I think that was part of our learning as storytellers, you know, um, to firstly that you've got to, that we had to do more research before we started uh, shooting and, and making that story. We needed to understand the story completely from an uh, earlier on and do more uh, and front load some of that planning. And then secondly, um, that uh, just, just that we uh, need to think about, um, we need to respect the, the voices of the people in, in the film and make sure that they, not just that they're on board with the story we want to tell them, but we understand from the outset what story they want to tell. So you're you're six months in uh, to doing this full time with Will to See Productions, and you've already and I, I love how you described your conversation with Travis, kind of going to someone who had established himself a, a bit more already as a kind of full time videographer in the city, um, asking for advice. And now, it, yeah, I'm sure that every video is a learning experience of sorts, mm -hmm. where you learn how to either better craft the video or tell the story. But where do you? of see or where do you hope to see wheel to see productions going in the next six months in the next year or are you um do you feel like you're kind of picking up traction with uh different nonprofits in the city or do you see yourself going in a, a completely different direction entirely i do feel that we that that it is uh, picking pick up traction um, it's been a rather interrupted year for me because i had to go back to britain uh, for a few months, uh, for, for family reasons. Um, but, but overall, I think it's been positive. Uh, it's, it's still kind of early days, hard for me to know, um, you, you know, whether, whether this will be become, uh, successful, but I am very, very hopeful. I am also thinking about, uh, you know, spreading our, you know, look, considering other options, including creating our own content, um, you know, short, short documentaries or opinion pieces um, directly for YouTube. Um, that's just something I might be interested in doing on top of uh, documenting local, local, um, local uh, organizations. And I've already gotten some of Leah's thoughts on this, but when you think about some of the challenges and benefits of being a New Haven-based film, well, actually, maybe I should ask, are you guys based out of New Haven or East Haven mm -hmm. or somewhere in We live in area? East Haven, East but, Haven. But, but most of our work really happens in New Haven or, or that you know, the local area. So when you think about being a filmmaker or videographer in this community, do you find that it is a particularly kind of supportive place for people looking to practice this kind of a craft? I mean, obviously yeah. you found plenty of subjects on which to make your movies and plenty of stories to tell. Uh, but when you think about, you know, w the kind of unique experience of being a, fi a filmmaker in New Haven, uh, how, how does that sit with you? I I, I feel that it has been um, really positive. I think I've I've been humbled by uh, being you know I've been humbled by the welcome that we've mm -hmm. received into the community. I think that we need to do more um, as a couple to in, to reach out to other people and collaborate together. Um, for example, there's a there's a great 
um, refugee uh, cameraman uh, called called Maho Mahmoud, and I've been wanting to uh, collaborate with him for a long time, but you know, I I just haven't really, you know, done that. And I feel that that we need to be part of this this sort of we we need to take responsibility being part of welcoming other people and collaborating together. Uh, there are some great venues for doing that, and I think we need to explore more. Um, we haven't really taken advantage enough of, of of all the ways in which we can reach out and collaborate with people, and that's that's part of what I'm excited about. Because I think being freelance and by yourself, it is can be a bit of a lonely existence if you want to just do everything by yourself. You know, you don't have enough people to bounce ideas off, and and that's something that I I seek to do more. And I, I think there are the options of doing that in New Haven, but I also need to, to take advantage of them. Well, yeah, I know it's kind of putting you on the spot. When you think about uh, Wheel to See over the next six months, year, do you, you know, hope for more collaborations, more videos like the ones you've been producing, maybe at a higher frequency or, or maybe the, the exact same frequency? When, when you think about where you want this company to be within the context of the kind of greater New Haven community, where, where do you see Wheel to See productions oh, going? Oh, Absolutely. Same types of videos, um, more of them. And I think part of that is starting a business. Neither of us had had any business skills or um, or video skills or anything. So it's all completely new. And um, so it's <laughs> it's taken a while to set up and, and to learn the skills and to, to get the experience needed to make. And, and with every batch of films... We, we learn so much and we think, okay, we, you know, we know what we got to do better next time. And so, um, but every time we go out, we end up meeting more amazing people. And, and I just feel so excited and, and, you know, we come back and, oh, we can make a video for them and we can make a video for them. And um, so, yeah, absolutely. It's, well well, William Winter and Leah Russell are the duo behind Wheel to See Productions. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, I really appreciate you. chatting about what you guys do. So where, if people want to learn more about your company, where can they go on the interwebs to learn? Wheeltosee.com. And it's it's uh, a wheel, like a bicycle wheel, to T-O-C-S-E-A. Great. Wheeltosee.com. Well, William, Leah, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. And it's been I, a pleasure. Just before we go, I want to say thanks again to all the, the local videographers who have welcomed us because it's really, um, they've all been so welcoming and, and supportive. So, yeah, thank you to all of you. All right. Great. Thank you. Well, you are listening to Deep Focus on 103.5 uh, FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Coming up next, a review of the new Civil War epic, Free State of Jones. But first, we're going to hear a little bit of music from Ellison Jackson.
Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. So, about halfway through Free State of Jones, the new Civil War-era epic directed by Gary Ross and starring Matthew McConaughey, uh, the Mississippi farmer-turned-libertarian guerrilla fighter Newton Knight stands in front of a crowd of fellow Confederate deserters and runaway slaves and offers a declaration of principles on which his separatist community of Southeast Mississippi shall be based. Number one... No man ought to stay poor so another man can get rich. Two, no man ought to tell another man what he's got to live for or what he's got to die for. Three, what you put in the ground is yours to tend and harvest. And four, every man is a man. If you walk on two legs, you're a man. So this scene coming at a pivotal moment in the inspired by a true story rendering of Newt Knight's rebellion against state-sanctioned violence and inequality captures in one moment what I really enjoyed about this movie and also what I found quite frustrating. So on the one hand, Free State of Jones is a genuine historical epic that follows several characters through Civil War and Reconstruction-era Mississippi as they grapple with the ideals of liberty and sovereignty and equality so central to the idea of the United States and yet so distanced from the lived reality of millions of people dehumanized by racism and bondage and desperate poverty. But on the other hand, this movie's grasp of character and drama often drifts towards the somewhat shallow and cursory, with too many scenes devolving into unidentified masses of people herding around McConaughey's character and murmuring their assent to his inspiring proclamations. So, Alan Knight, to, to start off, I, I kind of want to ask you, which movie did you see? You see the one that was swept along by big ideas about freedom and equality, ideas that resonate in any age of American history, today not excluded, or did you see a sprawling somewhat scattered vehicle for big faces and names instead of actual people and relationships, or maybe something in between. I, I want to go home because uh, what you said is exactly the way I, I felt about it. I mean, this is a movie with um, a great ambition and uh, a movie that makes lots of contributions along the lines of what you were saying, but by the same uh, token, it's, it's, it's deeply flawed. And um, uh, I would say that... Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know if there are more, more contributions. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where you, you love, you love something or you, uh, you, you love, you love something, um, because of its faults and you, you like it despite its faults somewhere in between there. You know, I kind the, the way that I wrote this setup is actually a bit misleading in terms of how I feel about the movie, because I'm actually much more positive about the movie than that setup would indicate. I I did recognize that perhaps it was a bit sprawling and and perhaps it was a bit shallow at points, but I really loved the uh, how much this movie grappled with ideals that were kind of vigorously debated at the time of the Civil War and Reconstruction, uh, and that manifested themselves in these kind of harrowing. Uh, historical reality of Confederate deserters, of runaway slaves, of people completely disenfranchised in in the rural Mississippi in the 1860s and 1870s, and how this one character at the center of it, I mean, perhaps he's too much of a, a Hollywood star to transcend the kind of distraction of, of his um, celebrity, but 
he is someone who bears all of the weight of the ideals and the discordance between those ideals and reality, um, whether it be his own frustrations with uh, the way that the Confederacy kind of disempowers yeoman farmers from uh, actually kind of reaping what they sow, or the frustrations that he sees with the way that uh, slaves are treated uh, simply because of their race. I, I thought that there was a, a lot of kind of su surprising weight to the movie in terms of the ideas that it was looking to engage and also mm -hmm. just how those manifested in a very entertaining, sweeping, ambitious, historical film. I thought it right. was well, let's, very impressive. Well, um, uh, let's put it a bit in context. I think it gets, as you say, it gets a lot of, it should get a lot of kudos for, for um, talking about um, this whole episode in civil war history that, uh, uh, most of us did know about these uh, civil war deserters forming their own kind of so-called utopia that doesn't last very long. Um, but it's, uh, uh, comes about because of the carnage of the civil war. That is, um, you know, that, and, and the, and the larger context that this is a, this is a movie that's, uh, made after 12 years a slave. So it's extremely, um, graphic in describing, um, uh, I would go beyond graphic. I, that's, and I think that's one of the problems with the movie. We can get to that in a moment. But the plus side is that we learn about this episode in Mississippi history. We learn um, a great deal about um, uh, Jim Crow and uh, the lynching and all that kind of stuff through uh, kind of problematical issues with the movie because it goes, it goes way into the uh, 1950s uh, with the flash forwards, which I think is a mistake. But all, all that said, um, we, we, we learn all that stuff. Um, and, and, um, uh, and there are even wonderful things like recapturing the word nigger, um, where in the scenes of the kind that you described, um, when, when Newt has to, uh, uh, corral his, his own fellow deserters to, to, to live with, to eat with, to spend time with, to integrate, um, his uh, his his new army, he he has to um, unite them through his declaration. And there's a scene which, to me, is even more powerful than his reading of the Declaration of the Values of the Free State of Jones. It's where Jasper, I think, or one of Matthew McConaughey's friends, uh, complains about the too much intimacy or uh, uh, of the blacks and the whites. It's very, he's, he's very low key. I think it's the best scene of Matthew McConaughey. And he's the, he's the big problem with the movie, it seems to me. But his good scene is where he says um, to a white guy, uh, uh, this, this black guy, Moses, he just picks cotton for the master. You die for him. So who's the nigger? Right. Spectacular. You know but the problem with Matthew McConaughey is in every scene, whether a noble one like that, whether kind of the sexual stuff with Rachel... He sucks all the visual oxygen out of every single scene, almost to the point where it's lurid. It's almost a kind of beefcake. It's, uh, you know, he's just got too big a face. And there's some stars where they make the faces and the bodies and the, uh, the visual activity of the actors around them work better. He um, erases them. And I think that's really the problem with the movie. Even in the most horrible sequence where he finds Moses, the arguably the only black guy, whose story is really being told. He finds him hanging emasculated from a tree and you see his, his trousers are uh, falling around his ankles and he's bloody. He makes that his scene, not Moses' scene. There's something wrong with that. 
Pornographic is the word that came to my mind. Mm-hmm. It dwells too long on all, all uh, the op- from the opening sequences of you know battlefield carnage to that scene. It doesn't know when to pull the camera away. You know, I before I did not have as many problems with Matthew McConaughey's performance as as you did, and I think that his performance is actually relatively understated, considering how he's in nearly every single frame of the movie. Now, I agree that with the the lynching of Moses' character, you're right, that scene ultimately feels like it's much more about uh, Newt than about Moses, and I think that's a problem. But I, I do think that uh, the the way that this movie um, handles race, issues of race and class, I think shows its uh, in inheritance, uh, the inheritance of 12 Years a Slave um, and its sensitivity to the Hollywood representation of kind of reconciliation of Union and Confederate forces after the war and how there was a kind of mission undertaken by both sides to uh, mutually kind of respect the valor that motivated either side uh, of the the war that people were fighting for. I mean, in that opening, one of the opening scenes when a fellow Confederate is saying, I'm not necessarily fighting for slavery, I'm fighting for valor. And this is not... Honor, honor. Honor. It's not just... Uh, a commentary upon the motivation of that specific character, but I think the idea of how the either side of the Civil War was remembered kind of immediately after Reconstruction was that both people were, you know, both sides were fighting for noble causes, and that is what will ultimately allow for reconciliation, because as long as we show, you know, enough respect for the people who sacrifice their lives, we don't have to necessarily dwell on the kind of underlying ideology and the kind of economic inequality uh, that was a staple of of both sides, both 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 the Union and the Confederacy. But I think that when it when it comes when it comes to race, I think that on in one scene we see the kind of reclaiming of the N word, where it's you know you're not uh, you're not an uh, an N word if um, if you are a child of God or if you have some kind of self respect, if if you see yourself as independent economically, independent of of a master. But on the other hand. This movie does not equate the concerns of kind of disenfranchised white lower class Mississippians with uh, former slaves, right? Even though it's saying they have some mutual interest, this movie recognizes that racism is not just a tool of class oppression, but also something that was a uniquely kind of terrible burden to bear for a whole group of people, specifically for the color of their skin. And I think that that is partly from i mean in if my big takeaway from 12 years a slave is that race the the violence of racism was what kind of kept the institution of slavery in place as much as anything else and here this is much more an economically motivated story about people finding kind of mutual interest along economic lines but still racism is not washed away underneath no that the economic people the interest. people who are you you know they they the 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 sense of equality and all that kind of stuff that uh, the Matthew McConaughey character uh, promulgates is not shared by anybody except maybe the second character, Moses. But the problem, the problems in this film um, um, actually were addressed in a column. I don't know if you had a chance to see it by Charles Blow in the New York Times. He's a, an African-American columnist. I think he has a kid here at Yale. And he uh, really took issue with this movie. Um, and some of the points that you described uh with a kind of positive slant, he took he took very big he took very big issues with the uh, distortion of history. That's what he called it. And in fact, he he I, he he said, for example, the very idea that this guy 
uh, Newt comes I- into the swamp and finds a, a black uh, people who, uh, you know, just sort of sitting there um, whittling away on sticks. And, you know, and he teaches them how to grow corn. He organizes them. He, he teaches Rachel how to read. What it says is, is the white savior guy comes in. And in fact, the, you know, the, 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 the few uh, uh, African-Americans who could read taught, the, taught their brothers and sisters how to read. In this movie, it's the white guy who is the savior. And um, he takes huge issue with that. And in fact, he, he, he understands the ambition of the movie, but he says um, uh, distortion is a form of violence. That's how he, mm. that's how he ends his review. And I think there, there is really something to be said there. This, you know, it's, it's a bit like Mississippi Burning, uh, another epic which is wonderful, about uh, the state that my dad used to call the armpit of the nation, um, where uh, if, if it hadn't been for the, uh, you know, for the three white guys and the FBI white guys showing up, you know, n- nothing would have happened. It, that's a distortion. And this movie really distorts the past, but it does tell us all about the viciousness of Jim Crow. The ever, uh, when Rachel says, we have to get out of here, we have to leave Mississippi, I don't want my son to be lynched, and I don't want him have to, to have to avert his eyes every time he passes a white man. It's very moving. So uh, and the more I talk about it, the more I realize what a contribution it is. But the Matthew, Matthew McConaughey is, um, really is the issue. Let's let's talk about this movie for a second as a uh, as a movie as a work of entertainment as a genre piece maybe a, a western or historical film or uh, an an epic. I mean, when I was watching this, I was thinking of it kind of like uh, as if it were Doctor Zhivago uh, inverse, in that you have a character who, um, if in Doctor Zhivago you have a kind of romantic relationship with two women kind of being the animating force behind his exposure to these incredible, you know, world changing moments of history during the time of the, the Russian revolution, Russian civil war, and his exposure to those kind of big ideas floating in the ether is always kind of underscored by his, the, the romance of it here. I found there is a kind of similar structure of a man who is I don't want to say torn between two women because there's never really much of a drama in the choice between who who he's going to be with, but he does uh, start out married to a white Mississippi woman, and then he ends up married to a black Mississippi woman, a freed slave. And I, but I found that the way that the relationships, the romantic relationships, were kind of woven into the fabric of the story, uh, were a you know he is always motivated by these larger kind of political concerns uh, of what does like freedom mean in a space between a union government that refuses to support him and a Confederate government bent on disenfranchising him and, and enslaving people? I think and, that's right. I, th- I think that they, that the movie does handle the relationships with, uh, w- with the women very well. And as a matter of fact, one of the most moving scenes, two of the most moving scenes have to do with uh, when the, when the white woman who has ends up with their child has no place to go, you know, after, after, after she has left him, uh, she shows up at his doorstep and he has a new life with Rachel, his, uh, for all intents and purposes, his, uh, his, uh, his Negro wife. He accepts his white wife back. He accepts fatherhood of the kid and Rachel accepts them all. And they become one 
family. I think that is uh, it's it's emotionally true and probably historically true. The difference between Omar Sharif and Matthew McConaughey is that you never have any question uh, to uh, and how th through what eyes and uh, and what motivations that uh, Sharif views the Russian Revolution. He's romantic. He's a poet. He's an individualist, and and he's a lover, uh, and he's a physician, and uh, all uh, all the um, the homogenous uh, terror of the Russian Revolution is squelching all that. I'm never a hundred percent sure what uh, Newt Knight is all about. That's is right, he I, is I, he a lunatic Christian? Because it implies that in the beginning that that he's a kind of a Jesus freak. Because um, when his nephew is dying, arguably the trigger for his whole uh, escapade, all he can say is, "Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God?" While the while the boy is dying, um, and so uh, there's that, and uh, I, I just don't quite know what else is this guy's motivation. He hasn't been reading Karl Marx in a translation that somehow got to Mississippi. I don't understand him. There is an uneasy kind of cult of personality that emerges around the character, and a couple of scenes. I mean, that's the worst uh, kind of framed and orchestrated scenes in the movie for me. Where anytime Newt's at the center of the stage, and then a group of unidentified people are just kind of murmuring assent around him, like I was describing at the top. But I found that actually his motivations were always quite clear for me, and that it was the exact opposite of the romanticism of Yuri Zhivago. He is motivated by this intense desire for freedom. And one of the like debates ongoing in American history is what exactly does freedom mean and who gets to kind of reap the benefits of freedom, who gets to, you know, qualify as free. And as he, you know, as this quest to understand how he can live most freely from, you know, not having to have his crops confiscated by the Confederate army during the war to understanding, okay, um, my understanding of freedom I, is, is a little bit different than these runaway slaves who are living in a swamp or than women who feel completely threatened by an ever-present Confederate army or after the end of the Civil War by the Union regime that either refuses to uh, back up the the elected governments who are protecting these people from Jim Crow or that completely leave and let the Klan run wild. I, I thought that the, the motivating force throughout was a, a political one, no, no, an no. ideological one, as opposed to a romantic one, but it always seemed pretty clear to me. No, I think you're being too intellectual about it, if I may say, uh, Tom. I think, I think it just if we look at the evidence of the movie, he, when his son is dying and Rachel comes and he first meets Rachel and she applies uh, voodoo or or, or grass, secret Negro grasses that only they, I don't know what. he She cures the, he is so indebted to her, he wants to give her everything. And I think in that moment, he, he kind of understands that he is them and what his motivation, I mean, this is a man who loves um, blacks. I mean, and there are, there were, you know, there are, there are people who just love African-Americans, white people who are just love African-Americans and feel that in many ways they're kind of, white Negroes themselves. I think that, I think he feels so identified as a person who is, he doesn't have cotton. He doesn't have slaves. He's, he's a medic. He's not even a soldier. He's like, an, he's like a nigger in his own life. And he recognizes that in, and, and, and his, and his love for, you know, the African-American race, if you will, as it's um, kind of lasered in on Rachel is, and it grows with tenderness uh, 
is one of the most beautiful aspects of the mm. movie. That's his motivation. That's in, you know, I, I don't see it necessarily as, as race specific for him. I think in this kind of motivating force of freedom and I'm going to wrap up. We only have 30 seconds here, but, uh, I, I think it's he recognizes the people most deprived of this elusive idea of freedom, and and he pushes for it at, at every chance he gets. And sometimes this movie kind of devolves into uh, kind of Hollywood kind of stereotypical representations of, of the hero and romance. But for the most part, I, I think it's a really well-made, very ambitious, broad kind of epic of a story that of especially a movie that is looking to depict post-Civil War yes. kind of reconstruction as much as Civil War. Yes. That's, I can't think of any other movies besides that, Birth of a Nation that, that thinks about That's right. This movie, this movie, if I were a high school history teacher, I would make this required because everybody talks about Jim Crow, Jim Crow, Jim Crow. Nobody knows really the details and the horror of what happened right after the, uh, the, 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 the 15th Amendment, its retrenchment, and the withdrawal of federal troops in 1876, which led to the Klan and... Um, basically the turmoil that resulted in what we have today. I'm way over time. Thank you so much for coming back. It's a pleasure to have you oh, on. I hopefully we'll you, talk Tom. again next yes, week. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to Deep Focus and we'll catch up with you next week.